There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What is fueling the nation's opioid crisis? How is it being combated? And is there any end in sight for America's drug epidemic? We'll answer all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. is the current state of the opioid crisis in the U.S.? Are efforts to mitigate it working? And what can be learned from all of its consequences? Well, here to talk to me about the opioid crisis is Associate Professor of Addiction and Overdose in the Department of Health Policy and Management at John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, Dr. Brendan Saloner. Dr. Saloner joins me now. Doctor, thanks so much for coming on. Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, this has been such a an important topic for us, especially as of late, as more overdoses happen and, and really affect our young communities and communities across the board. So I, I appreciate you coming on to shed light on this. Let's just start with what is the opioid crisis and what exactly is an opioid? Well, those are great questions. So the opioid crisis is a term that we use in public health to refer to the epidemic of addiction and overdose that has been affecting our country for at least the last 20 years. Um, And, you know, lately what we've been seeing is a rising number of Americans uh, dying from drug overdose, which is now the leading cause of injury death in our country. Um, To what an opioid is, it's basically a, um, a term that encompasses all kinds of um, drugs, uh, sometimes prescription drugs like hydrocodone or Percocet or Oxycontin, and sometimes illicit drugs like heroin or fentanyl. And what they all have in common is that they are derived from or synthesized to be like the, uh, the opium plant. And what does the opium plant do to your body and to your brain? Well, opium is interesting because it actually um, has the um, effect of what your body does uh, in, endogenously, meaning that your your brain actually has a reward system called the Ethiopia system. There's receptors in your brain that experience um, pleasure and sometimes experience the relief of pain. It's it's um, what sometimes gets activated when you have exercised for a long time and you're feeling that rush of endorphins. Um, but you know there are also plants that activate um, the uh, the opioid system and. Um, We've known for a very long time as the human species that uh, the opium plant has these um, pleasurable and pain relieving properties. Um, So that's why, you know, many uh, drugs to relieve pain were derived and created from opium. Um, 
And I think what has really changed is that pharmaceutical drugs and now um, illegal drugs have turbocharged that effect. And the potency of those drugs has just increased dramatically. And that creates a lot more risk for addiction and a lot more risk for overdose. When you say, um, you know, pharmaceutical companies have turbocharged that effect, something that I think about immediately, immediately is Purdue Pharma and what they did with, with OxyContin. And can you just tell me exactly how that situation got so out of hand. Was it the warning label? Was it the way that this was prescribed and kind of talked about in these communities? What happened? Well, it's really an interesting case study. Um, Purdue um, is a company that brought to market OxyContin um, that happened at the end of the 1990s. Purdue uh, went to the FDA and they said, listen, we want to create a long-acting opioid pain medication so that people who need pain relief can take one um, tablet and it gives them relief over a sustained period of time. They had this whole idea about how the um, tablet would um, not release large amounts of the medicine at any one point in time. But the problem was that it was easily tampered with. So you had in one tablet of OxyContin much more of the um, kind of morphine milligram equivalents of what we would call it, the, um, the, the measure of the strength of the opioid than any other medicine that had ever been brought to market. So immediately, um, even though you know, they said that you, you know, people shouldn't tamper with it, of course, people found ways to um, crush the pills, to snort the pills, to inject what was in, in them. And it took a very long time for them to actually recognize, you know, the harms of their product and to take corrective actions. And by then, you know, the effects were already being felt widely across the country. So that's what happened there. I think that, um, you know, it's it's well recognized that that is one of the worst mistakes that was made in the opioid crisis. But there's many other instances of, um, you know, prescription drugs being brought to market that uh, had a lot of potential for um, abuse, misuse, and ultimately addiction. So how how do you think we manage that? I mean, I'm not asking you to solve all the world's problems, but when we talk about this drug epidemic that's happening in our country and causing so many deaths, how how do we move forward from that? And when you do have these prescription drugs that have the potential to be abused, what is to be done? Well, it, it's really um, we talk about pillars of drug control policy, and one of them is prevention. So um, I'm a believer in education. I think, you know, if your doctor prescribes you any medication, you should, as the patient, be able to ask um, what's the safety of this medication? How can I use this more safely? If I bring this home, how can I store it in a way that will um, be safe for my family? You know, a lot of medications ended up in medicine cabinets, and unfortunately, mm. that led to other people getting access to them. Um, that was the problem with prescription opioids. Um, now, if you fast forward to the moment that we're in now, um, unfortunately, we are in a moment where we need to think more about secondary prevention, meaning what can we do for people once they already are um, you know, heavily involved in using opioids, whether it's prescribed opioids or opioids that they're buying you know, illicitly. And there, I think we have to look at a very different set of public health tools because it's really, um, frankly, too late to stop some of those people from you know, using opioids. What it's, what it's really going to come down to is one, helping them to be safer in their use of opioids, because for many people, addiction is a long-term chronic um, 
situation in their lives. And uh, what is really required is uh, strategies to help them be safer when they are using drugs and also to you know be supportive in their lives so that when they are ready to think about recovery, that the supports are there. And that includes you know the next thing, which is drug treatment. I could talk for a long time about drug treatment, but I think one thing that I really want listeners of your podcast to understand is that there's some really effective treatments out there that can help people who have addiction problems. Um, and, you know, at the top of the list, I would say is treatments with medications like methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone, the three FDA approved medications to treat opioid use disorder. All of them are effective. They might be right in different ways for different patients. And that's a great conversation to have with a medical professional. But just creating the awareness that there are treatments that work and that people can get better and recover, I think, is really, really important. How do those medications work? Uh, well, it's um, different ways, different medications. So um, methadone is a um, medication that actually works on the opioid receptors in the brain and, and occupies those same receptors that I was talking about earlier. So when a person is craving an opioid, uh, methadone can come in and occupy the receptors, basically um, stave off the feelings of withdrawal and discomfort that mm. are so um agonizing for many people and basically help them to feel more normal through the day. They, what's great about methadone is that it doesn't have the same highs and lows that other opioids um, create for people. So it just is a um, way that people can start being more imbalanced when their brain has been changed from long periods of opioid use. Buprenorphine is somewhat similar in the way that it works. Um, there's, there's some subtle differences that I could get into, but the idea is, is similar that it, it helps to kind of stave off that feeling of withdrawal. It creates the um, just a situation where someone can be a lot more comfortable and feel normal in their life, have the chance to regain normal activities, stop spending the day obsessing about finding drugs and, you know, just do the things that we all want to do in our lives. Um, now, Trexone, the third drug that I mentioned, is actually an opioid antagonist. What that means is that it blocks the receptors, and it basically means that a person can't get a high um, using the opioids that they used to use. So in, it, it, it requires a different situation. Someone has to be fully kind of abstinent from opioids to start naltrexone, but it can be a good choice for some people you know, who... Um, have other pieces of their recovery in place and just want um, that extra medication to help them, uh, you know, remain abstinent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, something that you said kind of made me think about the fact that when people try to quit these drugs, they do, they experience these really aggressive symptoms like withdrawal. So how, why does your body do that? Is it the addiction that your body's used to getting this Frequently, I mean, what exactly is happening in your body that creates this reaction? The short answer is that addiction has both a psychological component and a physiological component. And for opioids in particular, the physiological component, meaning just the way that your body has changed after long periods of substance use, um, means that your body is basically adapted to um, getting that high level of um Initially, it's reward and pleasure. And after a while, it's just the feeling like, you know, this is what you need to get to your baseline level of just not being uncomfortable. So when uh, someone is rapidly stopped from using those opioids, immediately there's an onset of withdrawal. 
uh, incredibly painful for many people and very difficult to overcome. You know, it's when we talk about going cold turkey and you may have seen it in movies. The reality is that um, when uh, when there is a really um, thoughtful clinical care plan for the patient, there are ways to taper patients and to um, address their discomfort during withdrawal um, so that they can get to a place of feeling normal without those drugs. But it does uh, often require the help of a medical professional to get to that place. Mm. Something also that I think about a lot is just, you know, th- there are so many different drugs on the market. And unfortunately, some of those drugs are being, being cut with fentanyl because fentanyl is cheaper to make. A lot of it, I actually just texted um, Bill Malusian. He's our reporter down at the border. And um, the latest DPS number he just sent me is as of the 29th of July, almost 4 million lethal doses of fentanyl has come over this year. So um, how is fentanyl being used and how dangerous is that drug? Well, um, fentanyl is a drug that actually has a legitimate pharmaceutical purpose. Um, It is used in surgery and anesthesiology. So I don't want to completely sort of badmouth fentanyl as a drug. But what has happened is that um, the ability to synthesize fentanyl in illicit labs overseas, especially, and bring it into our country, I think this just was realized that there is a big opportunity, a a market for these drugs and, um, you know, the means of creating them and and bringing them in. So it's, um, it's really part of why we're in such a complex overdose crisis right now. Fentanyl um, overtook heroin as the main illicit drug on the market uh, about uh, six or seven years ago. And now we are in a situation where fentanyl is increasingly being involved in overdoses with other drugs like methamphetamine and cocaine. To what extent that's because people are opting to use fentanyl with those other drugs and to what extent it's because they're using contaminated drugs is honestly a question that in public health we don't have a totally clear answer for. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably a little bit of both. But um, I think one thing that seems clear to me is that some of the people who are now dying of fentanyl overdoses have a different demographic than um, the overdose crisis that we were experiencing even 10 years ago. Right. And I, well, you know, I, I, I agree with you there. And when you look at these numbers, but there's also, I mean, like in cocaine, I mean, you're seeing traces of these other drugs and things like cocaine, which are being used in college on college campuses. Um, so it's a really scary thing when you really boil down the numbers and you look at the whole picture. We'll be right back after this. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Let's go into the CDC and those those agencies that you had mentioned. What has been their response? How have they taken action? Because this does continue to get out of hand. Well, I think one thing that has been true basically over the last three um, administrations um, in the White House is that they've all agreed that this is a federal public health emergency. Um, so we've been operating under an emergency declaration. 
Um, I think each of the agencies has um, been using its authorities to try to influence um, policy on the ground. Um, the CDC, for example, is trying to uh, improve our surveillance capacities, meaning our ability to actually kind of forecast what the trends are. And they've been working with the DEA on that. Um, the DEA obviously is a law enforcement agency, but also is starting to, uh, you know, work on issues um, related to also broadening access to the medications that treat opioid use disorder. They have some authority there too, and they've been working with SAMHSA on that. And I would say overall, the push of the White House right now has been on um, thinking about how to keep people alive who are in that uh, group that are at highest risk of overdose, um, getting out uh, greater supplies of naloxone, the drug that reverses overdose, trying to um, address some of the barriers to getting people into treatment with medication. That takes a, a few different federal agencies working together. And then just educating people about what's out there. You know, there's a technology that's very cheap called the fentanyl test strip. Um, and uh, the um, the White House has allowed that to be part of the um, things that uh, states can basically spend their money on. They can provide fentanyl test strips so that people who use drugs and they, they might buy some drugs, they want to know, okay, is this all cocaine or is there some fentanyl in here? Mm. They can use a fentanyl test strip to, to make a more informed decision. Right. How much, when you use a fentanyl test strip, how much fentanyl can kill you? What's the size of the amount? Well, that's a that's actually um, a hard question to answer uh, because it fentanyl potencies vary a lot. There's actually not just one fentanyl. There's a family of fentanyls. Ah. Um, so that's part of it. And then it very much depends on the person. Um, someone with no um, tolerance to opioids who uses fentanyl in a small quantity may well die from a small exposure. Um Someone who, um, you know, is experienced using fentanyl might be able to use it at a much higher dose. And, and you mentioned just the fact that overdosing uh, while well, overdosing on these drugs are the leading cause of death in our country. What who is who is this affecting the most? What groups of people are we looking at? Right. So it's the leading cause of injury death. So injury that's the death. category of death that includes motor vehicle accidents, um, you know, gun fatalities and so forth. Um and in terms of who it's affecting, it's affecting every community in some um, in some degree. You know, I don't think that there's any group of people that's completely shielded from this. We're seeing overdoses actually rise among younger people and older people, which is interesting. You know, it, it had been something that had primarily affected middle age, and then demographically, a lot of overdose deaths are happening now among um, African American and Native American populations in particular, you know, uh, in 2020 for the first time uh, in recent years, African-American death rates from opioids exceeded those of white Americans. So that um, kind of just tells you how uh, rapidly fentanyl is starting to affect that community. Mm. So why is that, do you think? Why have we seen a rise in overdose deaths happening in the younger and older generations, African-Americans, Native Americans? What's changing? I think that this is something that we are still trying to work through. We know some things to be true, like, for example, um, 
uh, cocaine is much more likely to be present in the death of an African-American than um, a white person, even though overall rates of drug use are very similar in the two groups. I think it's just different patterns. So people who might have not been sort of seeking opioids, but, you know, more involved in cocaine use. I think that's part mm -hmm. of what's going on there. Methamphetamines and um, kind of its impact on the Native American population, part of what's going on there. I'm I'm genuinely not sure about um, the oldest and youngest folks in the population. I think that um, uh, for the older folks, it may be sort of like the tail end of the prescription opioid epidemic, like people progressing through that um that change but that's just a hypothesis mm -hmm. and then you know younger people again kind of their um contact with stimulants and pills um that may now contain fentanyl i think that's part of what um experts are saying is going on there. Interesting. So then that that actually brings up a question about, you know, let's say you're a parent and you're you're reading the news, you're seeing how this is affecting. Let's just let's just pick young people in particular, because I do feel like there's kind of this push for these stimulants and there are more on the market. And and I mean, I, I don't know if there's necessarily more, but, you know, I even think about things that they say aren't addicting, like mushrooms and things like that. I mean, maybe it's Again, I'm no scientist. It has to be addicting to some degree. I don't know if it's chemically addicting since it's a plant. I don't know enough about that. But what would you tell parents as an, a piece of advice if they're dealing with kids that they're worried are going to get their hands on things like this? Yeah, it, it is a it is a scary topic, and I think that part of it is just being honest about your own. Um, your own feelings about it, um, being able to talk honestly with your children about it, trying to stay as factual as you can, being able to listen and and hear what you know your kids are going through because it it can be very dependent on sort of the community that that you live in. Um, certainly, one step that every parent can take is just making sure that if they have prescription opioids or other opioids in the house, that they are safely secured in a locked. Um, file cabinet in a locked uh, medicine cabinet or some other um, secure place. Um, so just, you know, ensuring that there's no um, ability for kids to get access to those uh, pills. But I think just generally um, trying to have a very factual scientific conversation with your kids about it, not being overly alarmist, but also recognizing that drugs have real risks for young people in their developing bodies. Absolutely. And and what does make an opioid more addicting than other types of drugs? Um, it goes back to the way that opioids tap into the reward system that already exists in your brain. So I think that kind of we mm -hmm. as humans are well designed to um, derive um, kind of the euphoria from opioids. I will say not every person responds to opioids the same way. Some people report that from their first time trying it, it was like a love affair. And for other people, it's like really makes them uncomfortable and sick and they don't want to have that. So, um, you know, there, it even goes down to each individual person's biology. But generally speaking, opioids sort of tap into something that we are developed to experience. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's that's why there are different doses applied to different people um, because everyone's body chemistry. And that, to me, is just what's so scary about drugs in general is that all of us operate differently. What one dose of cocaine for one person could kill another person. It really just depends on your body chemistry. Um, you know, as we wrap things up here, what do you think is the most important thing to know about the opioid crisis and then maybe something that um, a lot of people get wrong about it? 
Well, those are both good questions. I think the most important thing to know is that this is a very serious public health problem and that it, I, I hope everyone has some basic awareness that this is happening in their communities. I really want people to take back the message that people who use drugs, people with opioid addiction are not bad people, that this happens to our friends, our neighbors. Many of us have experience with it ourselves. And that, um, you know, addiction is a really chronic and difficult problem, but there are, you know, great solutions out there like the medications that I talked about. Um, so I, I, I hope that um, one thing that people will take away from this is that there is a way to uh, improve on our current situation using good sound public health tools. Something that people often get wrong about this is an idea that, you know, this is a problem that we can solve with law enforcement on its own. I certainly um, believe in the importance of law enforcement, but I think that it's a really complex issue where um, just telling people that they can't have drugs and punishing them for using drugs is um, has not shown itself to be a very effective solution in our society. So I definitely would say that wherever possible, finding ways to help people without putting them in jail um, is uh, really critical to, to getting our response right on this. Mm-hmm. Dr. Brendan Saloner, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate your insight. Thanks. Thanks for having me. anything from class these are my office hours and here are some top takeaways about the drug epidemic in our country number one opioids are derived or synthesized to be like the opium plant dr saloner explains that your brain has a reward system its receptors help manage the relief or pain or pleasure things like that that your brain experiences and these drugs in a way mimic that feeling number two Dr. Saloner says that what's really changed over time that's fueled this crisis is the fact that pharmaceutical companies have, as he put it, turbocharged that effect felt by the drugs. Oxycontin is an example of that, and those pills are easily tampered with. When you have a morphine-equivalent dose of an opioid and it can be crushed up and snorted, that's one of the many things that fuels this crisis. And number three... A way to mitigate addiction is drug treatment. For example, medications like methadone can occupy those receptors, so when someone's craving an opioid, methadone can block the brain receptor and help withdrawal and cravings. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast on the drug epidemic. For more podcasts, go to foxnewspodcast.com, and don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Class dismissed. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.